Matthew 1, um, you know, we've been going through this series called The Heralds and focusing on what that word sort of means. A herald is a messenger. It's someone who brings a message typically of good news or events that are coming. And the whole purpose is that this person or thing appears and says, hey, pay attention. Here it comes. Something is coming. Some good news is on its way. It's about to happen. That's why we sing that song around Christmas time, a hark, which means listen. The herald angels sing because it's saying, listen up. The angels are singing that something amazing is about to occur. Something amazing is about to happen. That's the Christmas story. It climaxes, obviously, when the angels are singing in Luke chapter 2, which we're going to look at next week. But those angels, those heralds, were preceded by others. And we've looked at a couple of weeks of that already. Uh, in Isaiah, we see that, in a sense, Isaiah heralds the coming of the Messiah. We also saw last week, we, I, I, we said Zechariah and Elizabeth, but you could have just as easily said Mary or even Gabriel, really powerfully Gabriel, appearing and giving a, a heralding message that good news is about to occur. And and Mary has this experience with this angelic messenger. And this week, we're going to look in Matthew 1 at the passage that Chris actually just read just a moment ago, that an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, sort of similar to the way that an angel appeared to Mary, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, possibly the same angel, Gabriel, but it doesn't really say. But the message is, very simply, Joseph, you got a baby on the way, brother, which is a surprise to him. We're going to talk about some of the details as to why. Some of you guys have uh, once before been new parents. Some of you may be new parents recently or maybe long into the distant future, perhaps, that may apply to you. I remember when we were new parents, when Brooke and I were were new parents, and um, man, was it overwhelming. There is nothing you can possibly do to prepare for being a parent. And some of you guys know that true. You can take classes, you can do all this stuff, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's like a job, right? When you, you can do training and all this stuff, but any employer will tell you the real learning happens where? On the job. That's the best training is on the job training. That is true of parenting, and it is scary as all get out. I remember thinking, wait a second, so we have to keep this thing alive? And we've done an okay job. We're four for four so far. Babies in the world in desperate need, right? I mean, they have literally completely dependent creatures. They're dependent on mom and dad. Lord will and mom and dad are able to, to give some provision there. I mean, it's, it's crazy that there's no training involved in that process, right? I mean, think of all the things that require some sort of license or permit or training in our world. They're not as important as raising a kid. And yet, you know, I don't know, it seems like a broken system. You got to contact a city official before you dig a hole in your front yard. But zero restrictions on who the hospital will send home with a human life. I don't know. Just something to think in mind, keep in mind. Every baby that has ever been born has needed their every need met. And Jesus is no exception to that. You know, we focus on Jesus' godness, his deity. But Jesus was a man. And before he was a man, he was a little boy. And before he was a little boy, he was a little boy. He was a baby. And just like every other baby, he came into this world completely dependent on his every need. And he was no exception to that. And yet, his arrival was different. His advent, which means arrival, was different. Because the focus of Jesus' birth was not his need. Whose need was it? Our need. The focus of Jesus' birth wasn't his need as a baby. It was our need as desperate, sin-stained creatures. He came to meet the desperate need of mankind. Not a physical need, but a relational one. And that is that our relationship with God from the foundation, from the garden, has been fractured. And Jesus came, yes, having all the needs of a newborn baby, but he came with the focus of 
your need and my need, and that is that we come into this world separated from a holy God in eternal darkness. And that's why it says that enter him the light of the world. John 1, 4, and 5, I love these verses. It says, in him was life. When we have death, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's true of that metaphor for all of time. Light has never lost the match with darkness. Man's desperate need, our desperate hope, came in the form of that baby, and we know the story did not end there. Guys, Advent, which is what we're celebrating right now as a church, that's why you see these uh, lights down here, and we're getting closer to the middle one being lit on Christmas Eve, which will be next Sunday. But Advent was a rescue mission for those in bondage, those in desperate need of a Savior. And the same God that dwelt among us and saved us promised to never leave us. That's all we can sing, Emmanuel, God with us, how long? Forever. We sang that a few times, didn't we? We kept repeating it, repeating it. That's by design. Because that's what I want you guys to really absorb today, is that Emmanuel was not just a Christmas event, it is a permanent event. God is always with us. Let's look at it. Matthew 1, 18. I'm going to read through 25, but we're going to mainly look at just uh, through 23, okay? <clears throat> Matthew 1, 18 starts. It says, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. That prophet is Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Advent, right? The arrival of something long anticipated. Matthew was a Jewish man, and Matthew understood a few things about Advent because Jewish people longed for a long time for the Messiah to come into the world. That is a long anticipation. One thing that you may not understand is that, yeah, we have four Gospels, but all four of those Gospels don't just try to, it's not like they're just you know, splatter and paint against the wall and saying, we tell different parts of the same story. Sometimes we fail to understand that they're telling different parts of the same story, but they're telling it from a separate mind, with a separate heart, with a separate intent. Matthew's goal as a Jewish man is that he is writing to a Jewish audience primarily. And that's why he starts his book, by the way, with a genealogy. Do you see that? The reason he starts in chapter one is, look, he ain't expecting any Greek people to pick up that genealogy and think, man, this is exciting stuff. But he's expecting every Jewish reader to pick it up and say, wow, this is some exciting stuff. The reason why is because Matthew wrote this gospel to be an evangelistic tool to those who longed for the Messiah. Those who looked back at their forefathers of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon. Looked back at them and said, man, it's been a long time coming. And so Matthew is writing these things to say, Messiah is not something you have to long for anymore. He's here. He has come. Emmanuel has 
occurred, which really makes a lot of sense if you consider the context of the heart of the man who's writing these things. Millennia-long anticipation that in Genesis 3, God promised to fix man's big problem all the way back in the beginning. That promise was re-upped in Abraham when God said that he would bless all the families of the earth through the Abrahamic one to come. It was re-upped in Jacob, who was Israel, that promised. Then David, a kingdom that will last forever, and we know who that king is. The prophets made a promise that Jesus would one day come, the suffering servant that Messiah, Isaiah, mentions from time to time. Matthew's way of saying finally is chapter 1. It's the genealogy where he says, this thing that you've been longing for for so long, I'm telling you that it has, he has arrived. So you sing that song we just sang, Oh Holy Night. That song slaps, yo. Sorry, I've been paying attention to the youngins too much. It says, long lay the world in sin and error pining. That word pining means suffering. Just been, long lay the world in just anguish. Till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. When you take your time and hang on those words, don't you hear the gospel there? The weary world finds hope, rejoices. Hope conceived. Hope that was conceived in the heart of God a long, long time ago was now hope conceived in the womb of a young woman named Mary. The hope of the world then is the hope of the world now. And as we talk about this hope conceived, I want to leave you with a couple of things this morning. Number one is that Jesus is more than a name. It's a message. It's more than a name. It's a message. And he is a message in and of himself. More than a name, a message. And we see this in our passage. The son was given the name Jesus. Not because the father liked the name. It wasn't like he was flipping through a baby book and was like, you know what? I like this one. Some of you guys, that's your, that's your style. It's like, guys, listen, man. These young, these young parents are getting out of control with these names, y'all. It's like, let's name, like putting three names together. Brin, Bra- Braxley. Because it's, it's all the names put together. We love this name. And it's, it ends in E-I-G-H, you know, because it always has to. And it has a middle name that goes with it, May or something like that. I don't know. If that's you, then I stepped on your toes, and I apologize for that. I wasn't my intent. But that's not what God was doing, right? God's style was not, I like the way that sounds. So Jesus has a meaning. There is a meaning, a message built into the name that is above every name. Let's see it. Verse 18 says, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together in in consummating their marriage, she was found to be with child. Before that, found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, here's what's happening. And and we can easily just read over that and not really focus. But I want you to understand, that situation is heartbreaking for Joseph. He is ready to get married to to Mary. The time is, is drawing near. And then he finds out that the woman that he's betrothed to is pregnant. And it's heartbreaking to him. And so it's easy to just kind of glide past that detail. But this, the beginning of this story is devastating for this man. They're betrothed. And I don't expect you to have a full understanding of what that means in their context. It is engagement, but it's more than engagement. Because for them, engagement wasn't just sort of this informal agreement, which is what it is in our culture. For them, a betrothal was different than that. It was a legally binding agreement. It was saying, you're as good as my wife, and I'm as good as your husband. We're just waiting until it is finalized. 
there was no breaking an engagement without big consequences. And this is what is occurring, is that Joseph is now given a, a difficult scenario where he has to make a hard decision. We have this legally binding agreement, and yet the problem is that, Mary, you are already pregnant and roughly about four months down the road. And not with Joseph's seed, but with God's. And you can imagine, and maybe there's some humor here for us, but we would think Joseph would be suspicious of this, right? Mary says, Joseph, I'm pregnant, but don't freak out. It's God's. What? Are you reading that thing? Well, that's absurd. And Joseph had obviously thinking, you are just a liar. What are you talking about? And it sounds absurd. But listen, in all seriousness, it is just that. It is serious. You have to understand, all that Joseph knows is that his wife-to-be is pregnant by someone other than himself. And it's not like our culture, and this is very important. You can't just say, all right, well, the engagement's off. Her life goes on as a single mom. For Joseph, there's plenty more fish in the sea. Oh, well. No, in their context, this was far more serious because of the consequences that would fall specifically on Mary. And we read a little bit about that starting in verse 19. It says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man, we'll talk about that, a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And we cannot read that with 21st century eyes and ears. We've just made divorce nothing almost. Just no big deal. Half marriages, that's what they say, half a marriage. No big deal. We can't read it that way. We have to read it with their eyes, with their ears. Joseph is faced with a gut-wrenching situation. And two things are said about Joseph's character. One is that he loves God and wishes to honor him. That's why it says he's just. He honors God and wants to honor God. But the second thing is that he loves Mary and wishes to honor her. One after the other. He's just means that he has law upholding. So whatever God's word, the law says about what this has happened, Joseph's inclination is to do what God says they should do. And that's bad news for Mary. Because Deuteronomy 22 would say to, if someone like Mary is is gone and, and slept with another man and conceived, regardless of conceived, slept with another man, what you do is you purge the evil from your midst, is what it says. Specifically, it means death by stoning. And so Joseph has the fact that he's a just man and says, I know what this means for Mary, who I love. And that's the second part. While he honors God's law, he also loves this person. It says that he wants to do right by her. Unwilling to put her to shame is the way of saying that he is compassionate toward her and kind toward her. He sees her as an unclean fornicator, knowing what the law says about that. And so he's thinking, maybe I'll just divorce her quietly. And like, people won't chase that to its, un, like, its inevitable end. And so maybe there's a way to do both. But you see, the passage reads like he's not sure what he's supposed to do. There's contention between being just and being merciful and compassionate. And so that's what's so powerful here is that in the middle of this wrestling match where he's not really sure what he's supposed to do because he, he loves God and yet he loves Mary, what do I do here? Then you have this word in verse 20, behold, which we sang just a minute ago. That word behold is meant to just jump off the page and say in the middle of hardship and uncertainty and difficulty, the word behold jumps out of nowhere and everything changes. But as he considered these things, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. You hear the dilemma? Here's the solution. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
It's from the Holy Spirit. Notice that the angel addresses him as Joseph, son of David. His dad's name wasn't David. It's the angel's way of saying you are in the lineage of the David, King David. It flashes back to the genealogy. He's not David's actual son, but he is his descendant. And so, again, the idea here is that as an evangelist, Matthew is saying, look back to chapter 1. He's saying, this guy is in the lineage of the one from whom the Messiah would come. Look back at chapter 1 and you'll see that there's something at play here. God is doing something. It's there for a reason. It's not just the boring part for us to just flip past. It's powerful. Because Jesus was both the son of David and the son of God. Conceived, it says, that that which is in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Yes, he is the son of David because he will belong to them but he is from God, the Son of God, because he is conceived of him. He would belong to man as man. He would belong to God as God. And you see a collision course here. Whereas a moment ago, the collision course was the justice and the mercy. The collision course now is that he would be man's perfect representative as man, but he would be God's powerful messenger as God. It's an early foreshadowing. Because what we see here is a collision course as the sacrifice. The collision course is as a human, he would be the perfect substitute for the humanity. But as God, he could powerfully pay the debt and defeat the grave. Mm. Verse 21. It says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. If you write in your Bible or underline or anything and you see the word for or because right there next in the middle of verse 21, I want you to circle that word. The reason why is because the very next words that are going to come out of this pen from Matthew are going to be the reason why Jesus will be his name, okay? He's saying, here's why his name will be Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins, He's given the name for a very powerful and specific reason. You'll call him that for a reason. Jesus' name literally meant and means Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. It's a popular Jewish name. It would be Yeshua. Maybe you've heard that before. Translated Joshua in Hebrew. You go and read about Joshua. Go and put that slide up there that I have that, that name slide. I don't mean for this to look confusing, but I just want you to see New Testament Jesus, Old Testament Joshua. These are the same names. The way that they would see it, it's not like this because their alphabet is different, but it sounds like Yehoshua. The first syllable, that Y-E-H, would be short for the proper name of God, which is Yahweh. Well, I just want you to see how it means that. And so you have Yahweh, and then sandwiched with that, that last part, it's you know, conjugated to look differently. I'm giving some of you guys a lesson you do not want today, and I'm sorry for that. But it's conjugated that way. It's simply two words that are sandwiched together that mean the Lord is salvation. You're going to call his name Jesus for he will save people from their sins. Do you see that? He literally is, by his very name, the salvation from God. You know, in the Old Testament, we had a Joshua. And Joshua was named this. And then you know what Joshua did? He was God's salvation. Joshua saw God's people wandering in the wilderness without a hope. You're going to hear a lot, of, a lot of significance here with Jesus. God's people wandering without a hope, with no home, nowhere to go. Joshua says, I will lead this people to the land of promise, the land of, of, of rest. And so Joshua comes and says, 
Let's go. And they go in and they conquer the enemy and they find a place of peace and rest and a place where they can dwell. Isn't that what Jesus has done? Jesus has found us in our wandering and he has delivered us to the land of promise, the land of rest. And it's not just temporary rest and it's not a geographical location. It's eternal rest in the presence of God. And we have the same guy here because we have Yeshua. You have God is salvation. And Joshua was named this because he took God's people from bondage into salvation, from Egypt to the promised land. And back then, parents also often chose names as a hopeful omen for their children. And certainly that's why Joshua was named that, because they were hoping that God would be the God of salvation. And this is true for us as well. Sometimes parents choose names as, as sort of a, a hope for their own children. Um, etymology, which just means like the study of, of words and why they mean what they mean. If you haven't noticed, that fascinates me. And sometimes that comes out uh, in my preaching. My, my brother's name, and I've told you guys this before, my younger brother's name is Luke, uh, as in Skywalker, also as in, you know, the Bible. Uh, the name means light, which is why the main character in Star Wars' name is Luke. That might have just blown your mind. Wow. My brother's name is Luke. His middle name is Alexander, and I think that's the coolest name in our family. My mom will watch this, I'm sure, and I don't mean that to sound ugly, Mom. Um, but his name is cool. It means light, and then Alexander means defender of men. So Alexander the Great was appropriately named, right? My name is, is not as cool as, as Luke Alexander. My name, Caleb, it, it means dog. <laughs> Specifically, it means loyal friend, but it means dog. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, if you say to me, what's up, Caleb? You're saying, what's up, dog? So thanks. So uh, anyway, his name's a lot cooler than mine. We, but we did the same thing when, when Brooke and I were naming our kids. We, we didn't want to name them cat, you know, or kangaroo or something. We wanted to name them uh, something that was sort of an omen. We wanted it to be sort of something that maybe one day they will be. They will live up to this. And uh, we named all of our kids with that in mind. Our third born is Eden, and her name means delight. And she just always lives up to that name. Always. Let's see the part where she is um, a delight. Look at that. <laughs> Isn't she? I mean, come on. That's about as cute. That's delightful. But this is when she's not so much a delight. <laughs> I just got to stop from Brooke. So you can take that down. Let's, let's stop. Um, we named her that because we wanted her to be a delight. But just like all of you, maybe you do that. I mean, there are times that we don't always live up to our name, right? I'm not always a loyal dog. But look, back then, parents also often chose a name as a hopeful omen for their children. And Joshua was an example of that. And many, many others were examples of that. They did the same thing as sort of a hopeful omen for their own kids. Well, in ancient times, parents chose the name Yeshua, Joshua, for their sons as a hopeful omen that God would save, that he would bring rescue, that he would bring salvation for his people again. And God's people were always needing God to be a God of salvation. They needed it from Egypt. They needed it from Assyria. They needed it from Babylon. They needed it from Persia. And in the current context, they needed it from Rome. And so... So many of the people were named this to say, I hope God saves us. I hope God does what God does again, that he redeems us, that he saves us. And I want you to see that because God the Father chose the name Yeshua 
He chose the name Jesus for the Son of God because through this life, God would bring salvation, not from Egypt or Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Rome. He would bring salvation from the greatest bondage, which is our enemy called sin. And so whenever we hear the name of Jesus, I want you to know that you're not just hearing the name of the Son of God. You're hearing the message of God, the herald message. And what the angel is saying is, I want you to give him this name because I want you to know that a messenger is coming. He's not just going to be a good preacher. He's not just going to be a miracle worker. He's not just going to be a good pal. He is going to be the son of God who will save people from their sins. And he is still that name. To seek and to save that which is lost. And he preached that message, man. His name preached that message. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we hear that message. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the divine transaction, you guys, a substitutionary payment. And Matthew's Jewish heritage and evangelism shines out right here because he wants them to make a connection. The same way that God saved through a first Joshua from bondage to a land of promise, God is sending another Savior from sin's bondage, Jesus, to an eternal dwelling that has been promised. There's something, maybe we should sing that song a little differently. There's just something about that name. You guys know that hymn, right? There's just something about that name. Because when we sing that, there is something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. That's who he is. His name is a herald message. And guys, as we say that name, as we sing that name, as that name perhaps is bouncing off the walls of your house during this season, I want you to know you're not just saying a name, you're proclaiming a message. It's an anthem of praise that Christ did not advent, arrive just for us to be saved and sit on our hands. He arrived that we would find life and that we would join the chorus of the angels in the field that night when they said, glory to God in the highest, peace on earth. That glory of God is shown, peace has arrived to earth. And guys, we are heralds of that message. He is the conception of hope personified. The thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. More than a name, a message. The second thing, and the last thing that I want to see today, is that he is more than a visitor. He is a resident. He's more than a visitor. He's a resident. Just like the name Jesus, you know, Yeshua, The word Emmanuel, which we see next, carries with it a meaning, a message. And that word literally means, you probably may know this, God with us. The word Emmanuel, just like the the name Jesus, the name Emmanuel carries with a meaning. It is God with us. Matthew means to demonstrate here God's faithfulness, not just in the genealogy, but also with these next few verses with the prophecy. That's why it says that these things happen to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Look at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And this is from Isaiah 7, 14. It says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The birth narrative took place to fulfill so that God could be proven faithful, a fulfillment of this 
prophecy written a long time ago in Isaiah. And just like I said just a moment ago, we need to read this with the eyes and the ears of the Jewish people that would be reading this first. And so you need to understand that in Isaiah's context, God's people had two hostile kings breathing down their necks. Long time ago, hundreds of years ago, and through Isaiah the prophet, God is promising this kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, that a sign would be given that God would rescue his people again. You know what the sign is? A virgin's going to give birth. A virgin's going to conceive, which is a miracle. It would be a sign. So Matthew tells us that though the verse served an immediate context when Isaiah wrote it, it is, its ultimate fulfillment came in a different time to deal with a different enemy. Not the kings that were breathing down their necks in that context, but Emmanuel, God with us, would come among us and be our rescuer. The emphasis is not just that God would send rescue, it's that he loved us so much that he himself would be the gift that accomplished rescue. God with us. Advent. But guys, God with us is a much larger message than the starry night in Bethlehem. It's an even larger message than a 33-year-old life in the Middle East. We are heralds of the fact that God was not just with us then, God is still with us. God is still with us. Now, this is really neat because the book of Matthew begins with Matthew saying, God with us. Matthew 28, the end of this book, I want to read this. Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, this is Jesus, his last instruction. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Listen, and behold, I am with you always. You hear that, right? You have a bookend here. God with us. And he says, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. This is not an accident, church. The purpose there is to see when we sing Emmanuel, we sing God with us forever. It did not stop when Jesus ascended. And Emmanuel's meaning is not most realized, please hear this, Emmanuel's meaning is not most realized in a manger birth, a nativity. It is most realized in your and my new birth. The most powerful manifestation of God with us is not in this, I don't want to use it, extemporaneous, I think is a word. It's not on the outside, just this physical thing that we observe in a nativity. And you know what's more powerful than that? more than just a singular location in Bethlehem on one night and one time, is that God is simultaneously indwelling all believers forever for all time. That's a greater Emmanuel than the manger scene. And what Matthew wants us to see and what Jesus wants us to see, that Emmanuel did not just happen in Bethlehem that night. It is still happening. Emmanuel is still occurring, still with us forever. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then Emmanuel applies to your life at this very second, in this very season. Why does that matter? Because if Emmanuel is our story, and if you're in Christ, it is, then you have strength in weakness because God is with you. You have present help in time of need because God is with you. 
You have comfort in your sorrow because God is with you. You have healing in your hurt because God is with you. You have fullness in your emptiness because God is with you. You have a friend in your loneliness because God is with you. You have a forgiving embrace in your regret and shame because God is with you. You have a future rest beyond the present stress because God is with you. You have hope beyond the grave because God is with you. That's why Emmanuel matters. Emmanuel may draw our gaze to the manger, but it should hasten our affections to the cross, to the empty grave, and to the Spirit of God who is still with us. Let's herald that. And the reason I say that, that we need to herald that, is because we're the messengers, not the angels. God has mobilized his church to spread that good news. And people are searching, and people are seeking, and you don't have to look real hard to see that we live in a hopeless world, and you don't have to look real hard to see that people are looking for hope in a hopeless world, and striving and grabbing, and we know that they will not find fulfillment in anything except for him. How do we get to heaven how do we get to God? How many times, what do you think it means to be a Christian? How do you think that we get to heaven? Guys, in a world that is asking so many questions, our answer must be unequivocally, God came to you. You know, like Joseph, God was faced with the conflict of justice and mercy. Joseph looks at his situation with his wife-to-be, and says, I've got to be true to what God's character is, and yet I have this desire to be compassionate to this one. Don't you see that that's God's story with us? Is that God sees you in your sin and says, the wrath of God must be satisfied. This one deserves the wages of sin, which is death. And yet he has this conflict and says, but I love them. They're created in my image. And it's in the midst of that conflict that we have a message. Behold, Emmanuel has been born. He comes between the justice of God and the mercy of God and says, pour out all the wrath, not on them, pour it out on me. And so you see how the Christmas message is the collision of God's justice and God's grace. Guys, we're called to simply be heralds of that good news. I mentioned this last week that I think the Christmas season intensifies those things that I mentioned, that list I just said just a moment ago. It intensifies weakness. It intensifies needs. It intensifies stress. It intensifies hurt and loss. Some of you guys buried somebody you love this week. Two families in our church. And now, forever, this season will be a season of loss. And whether that wave has hit you now or before, or it may be yet to happen, there's just something about this season that intensifies the groanings, the pining. But there's a thrill of hope. There's a weary world that can rejoice because a new and glorious morn began 2,000 years ago in Emmanuel, but he is still with us.
And as we take the Lord's Supper together today, we celebrate that the climax of Emmanuel was not a manger, but it was powerfully displayed, displayed in the powerful work of Jesus who took on sin and death that we could take on life eternal.